Well, I want to say hi to everyone joining us this morning, wherever you're watching from. Great to be together. Uh, It's been so great to be with you today, and I just cannot tell you how proud I am of the Orangewood staff in this season. They have gone above and beyond in so many ways as we have all tried to figure out what does the church look like during a pandemic. I was looking forward to being with you in person this Easter, and I have to confess I never imagined that I would be preaching to you, and this is how things would be happening, but I trust that God is in control and that this was the medium he intended. And I'll say this as we begin, in light of everything that's happening in our world, there may not be a more important thing we need to hear than the message of Easter and the resurrection in this season. The Orangewood preaching team has done an amazing job planning our sermon calendar that today we finish the Gospel of Mark looking at the resurrection. And we look at this amazing book and the life of Jesus. And we'll focus our attention this morning on the first eight verses of this final chapter. Mark wrote these words 2,000 years ago, but today we receive them again with power for our day and in our life. It says this in Mark 16. Well, the Sabbath was passed. Mary Magdalene married the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And they said to him, do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. There are three invitations we need to see from this passage if we want to know the power of the resurrection in our lives. First, the history of the resurrection. Second, the heart of the resurrection. And last, the hope of the resurrection. The history, the heart, and the hope. Let's look first at the history of the resurrection. In our passage, there are these three women who have come to Jesus' tomb to care for the deceased. Uh, They will go through a very lengthy process using spices and ointment that are a sign of respect for the dead and also the process where they will keep the body as fresh as possible. And upon arriving at the tomb, the passage tells us they encounter a young man. Now, all commentators agree this is no ordinary young man, but an angelic being. And these women are told in verse 6, You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. In our day, many skeptics struggle with the resurrection. And most people think the burden of proof is on believers to give evidence that it actually happened. But actually, the burden of proof is also on the non-believers. 
You see, the reality is the resurrection and the history of the resurrection are pretty strong. If you're a non-believer, you have to posit a reason for the explosion of Christianity amidst massive persecution and how this faith overtook the Roman Empire in 200 years. You you see, there are many other people who claim to be messiahs in the first century. There were these would-be messiahs. They were quite common, actually. They gathered a following, espoused a teaching, led a revolt. But with every movement of one of these would-be messiahs, they were eventually killed or most likely executed. And what happened after the death of these would-be messiahs was their followers would all return back home and back to their life. And we see the same thing happening with Jesus' disciples. Back to their home, back to their community, back to fishing. But something changes. Now, I know what someone is thinking. Well, Tyler, we can't trust the Bible. I mean, it's a book of legends. Uh, Nice stories, really nice stories, made-up stories, meant to give us hope, but they're not real. Tyler, you you say the history of the resurrection, but, but we can't really know if these are true. And, well, Mark, I think is really challenging us in our thinking on this. Why do I say that? Well, let me first explain it this way. Several years ago, uh, my family, we went home to to visit our extended family in North Carolina for Christmas. And we all ventured out for lunch one day to Chick-fil-A. And the reason I can remember this story so vividly, like it was yesterday, is for one simple reason. is because we were going to Chick-fil-A. And we do not have Chick-fil-A here in Detroit. And you're wondering right now, how could you possibly function in life without Chick-fil-A? Well, I'll say it this way. You know the pain that you feel when you're wanting Chick-fil-A so badly, and then you realize that it is Sunday and it is closed. Well, imagine it's always Sunday up here in Detroit. Pray for us. But as we're waiting at this traffic light about to turn into the parking lot, All of a sudden, bam, our van gets rocked by an unknown force from behind. We knew we had been hit and we'd been hit hard. We get out of the van and we see that three cars back, a car has smashed into another car that has smashed into another car that has smashed into us. Everyone was okay, thank goodness. The police officer arrives and and what do we all have to do? We have to give an eyewitness testimony to what happened. What are the facts? What did we see? Well, Mark is dropping all of these little clues of corroborating evidence throughout his gospel. In fact, uh, British scholar Dr. Richard Baucom wrote in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And his thesis was that the Bible is giving us a picture of all the marks of how historians did history in the first century. Abakam says that these oral histories were verified by the still living eyewitnesses. We see this in Mark 15, where the Roman officials are looking for someone to carry Jesus's cross. And we read in verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Bauckham explains that this is a perfect example of ancient historiography. Why mention he's from Cyrene? Why mention he has two sons named Alexander and Rufus? Mark tells us these details because he says you can go and verify the evidence. 
You can hear it for yourself. What are the facts? What did you see? These aren't legends. They're footnotes. These are the citations for you to know that this is history. Second, there's one other way from this passage for you to know that this is history and not legends. Have you ever heard of Celsus? He was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher in the first century writing who was adamantly opposed to Christianity. Uh, He wrote in his books arguing against the credibility of the faith. And one of his main objections is the resurrection. And his main issue with the resurrection, and I will paraphrase his words, was that the resurrection cannot be true because it is based on the eyewitness testimonies of women. I'm not making this up. This is what Celsus actually said. But who really saw the resurrection? A hysterical woman? If this Jesus were trying to convince anyone of his powers, then surely he ought to have appeared to others. This was a major defeater in the first century. You you see, in ancient cultures, women were marginalized and they were not even allowed to give testimony in court. But every gospel account tells us that the women were the first to report on the resurrection. Every gospel. Here in Mark 16, Matthew 28, Luke 24, and John 20. No one making up a story in the first century would ever have women as the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. No one. But what we see in every gospel account is that the women are the first to see the resurrection and then to report it to others. There is only one possible reason given to explain why all four gospels would have the women as the first eyewitnesses. One reason. Because it is true. Because it is history. There is no other logical explanation for the resurrection accounts to name the women as the first eyewitnesses unless it is true. If you're writing a legend, there's no way you would have had the women as the first eyewitnesses in the first century. You see, the resurrection isn't true because it gives hope. It's a nice story. No, the resurrection gives hope because it is true. It's history. Study it. Think logically about it. Examine it. Maybe you're watching this morning and you have some doubts about the resurrection. But if I may ask you a simple question, have you ever doubted your doubts? Have you ever looked at the history of the resurrection? Have you ever created a plausible reason for the explosion of Christianity outside of the resurrection? Why hundreds and hundreds of people claimed that they saw him. Why these followers who saw him ended up losing their lives, believing the resurrection was history. Nothing else makes sense of the evidence when you examine it. Maybe you need to hear the invitation this morning to come a few steps closer to this tomb and to see where they laid him. He is not here. So that's our first invitation. The second invitation is less logically driven and more emotionally driven. It's the heart of the resurrection. It tells us this in verses two and three. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Uh, these women have journeyed to the tomb. They've come with every expectation to encounter death. How do we know this? 
Well, first, they've already purchased the spices to anoint the body. Uh, Most likely, they have gone out Saturday night after Sabbath have ended. And and they've come to honor this body through an embalming process. The second reason is clearly they're expecting death is because on their way to the tomb, they realize that they're going to need someone to help them remove this very large stone that is in front of the tomb. Uh, they, they were hoping that there would be some passerby that was going to be coming along very early this Sunday morning. And they have come expecting to find death. But they found a resurrection. The, the irony is, is that the one place we expect to find death is actually the only place we find resurrection. And every other place in our life where we're looking for resurrection, we actually find a tomb. What do I mean? Well, Ernest Becker wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book in 1974 called The Denial of Death. A Becker who is not a Christian says that death haunts us, and we don't want to acknowledge its power over our lives. Instead, Becker tells us uh, we create what's called, quote, immortality projects, our places of meaning and purpose, our places of identity, our places of security, the, the places we are looking for resurrection. This is the heart of the resurrection. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are all looking for it. Every one of us, young and old, rich and poor, unknown and famous, we are all searching for a resurrection. I recently watched a documentary on the life of the musical artist Taylor Swift, and the documentary was called Miss Americana. It tracks Taylor's life, if I can call her Taylor. Uh, We're going by first name now. It tracks her life backstage and away from the glitz and the glamour to hear how she makes sense of her music, her fame, her fans, and everything in between. She shares her life's goal and ambition was centered around one achievement. One achievement. Winning a Grammy. The highest honor of a musical artist It is the sign and the symbol that you have arrived, that the tomb is empty. But listen to what Taylor Swift says and what she felt inside when she went up on stage to receive her Grammy after winning. She says this, all I ever wanted was to win a Grammy. And when I did, I had to ask, now what? Is this it? This is the heart of the resurrection. We're all searching for it. We're all striving for it. We're all looking for it in a thousand different places. But however promising it looks, it's just a tomb on Sunday morning. Some of us are looking for resurrection in our careers. We've woken up early. We've headed out looking for resurrection. But we've only found a tomb. Some of us, uh, we're looking for it in our relationships. We're looking for it in our salaries, our accolades. Uh, We're looking for it in the hope of what life will be like post-COVID-19 when I can finally have a break from my kids. We keep saying to ourselves, once I get there, once I get there, it will be resurrection. But all we find is a tomb. We say like Swift, Now what? Is this it? Is this all there is? Is this all I've been hoping for? The writer Henry Nouwen says it this way. 
Aren't you like me, hoping that some person, thing, or event will come along to give you that final feeling of inner well-being you desire? Don't you often hope, may this book, idea, course, trip, job, country, or relationship fulfill my deepest desire? But as long as you're waiting for that mysterious moment, you will go on running helter-skelter, always anxious and restless, never satisfied. This is the way to exhaustion and burnout. This is the way to spiritual death. Ken Davis wrote about a woman who looked out her window and saw her German shepherd uh, shaking the life out of the neighbor's rabbit. Uh, Her family, uh, they did not get along with this neighbor, and so they knew this was going to be a disaster. Uh, She grabbed her broom. She began to pummel her dog until the dog finally dropped this extremely dead rabbit out of its mouth. This woman, she panicked, and she did not know what else to do. So she grabbed the rabbit. She took the rabbit inside. She gave it a bath. She blow-dried the rabbit back to its original fluffiness. She combed this rabbit so it was looking really, really good, snuck back into the neighbor's yard, and propped the rabbit back into its cage. An hour later, she heard screams coming from next door. She asked her neighbor, what's going on? Our rabbit, our rabbit, her neighbor cried. He died two weeks ago. We buried him. And now he's back. Whoever you are this morning, can we all admit we're looking and hoping for a resurrection? These women have come naturally looking for death and have found a resurrection. While on the other hand, we have looked for resurrection in a thousand other places and have only found death. We are looking for heaven and have only found hell. We've only found despair. We are, as Nowen says, anxious, restless, and never satisfied. But whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, how can we have hope that God accepts us even though we have gone looking for resurrection in all the wrong places? How can we have hope this Easter that God would bring new life in us? Well, that brings us to our last invitation, the hope of the resurrection. Uh, You you may have missed it, but in verse 7, this angelic being gives the women directions on what they are to do next. It says this, "Uh, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. How can you know that we have hope for the resurrection? Well, it's actually right here in this verse. And it's an incredible promise to you and me this morning. Why is there such a word of hope for us? Well, I I can see at least two reasons. First, uh, this angel tells Jesus uh, that he he tells tells them that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. He's waiting for you. Uh, He he can't wait to see you. Uh, The angel does not tell them, uh, but go home. Uh, Clean yourself up. Stop turning to all these other places for meaning and purpose in your life. And, And then... Jesus will meet you. He does not say that. Jesus has already gone ahead of you and he's waiting for you. He's ready to see you. What a message of grace and hope. But secondly, and maybe you already noticed two words of hope in this verse. Just two words. What are they? And Peter. And Peter. Now, why are those two words so important for us to hear? Well, you can imagine how Peter would have interpreted if it if just said, uh, go tell the disciples. Uh, Peter would have been thinking, okay, all those other guys who didn't blow it can go meet Jesus. 
All those other followers who didn't deny him three times. Yeah, I know Jesus would really love and be excited to see them. Jesus knew that we have the same propensity as Peter. Uh, We think that Jesus wants nothing to do with us because we have looked for resurrection in other places just like Peter. That we've been prideful like Peter. That we have gotten self-righteous like Peter. That we've become angry like Peter. That we've been consumed by the approval of others just like Peter. Uh, But God extends to Peter the same grace and hope that he extends to every person who would go and see him. You see, religion understands salvation as earning the right to go see him. But Christianity reminds us that it is the screw-ups and the failures that he stands ready to receive, waiting to receive. There is hope this Easter morning for any person, no matter what has happened to you, no matter what is going on in your life, there is nothing that separates you from going to see him. He has gone ahead of you. He is waiting for you. He can't wait to see you. And you may be saying, Tyler, how can you be so sure of this? You don't know what's happened in my life. You don't know about my secrets. You don't know about my addictions. How can you know that he's waiting for me? Well, in Mark 14, we really see the answer to your question. Uh, Jesus predicts right to Peter's face that he's going to deny him three times before the crowds. Immediately after predicting what will take place in Peter's life, Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to be with his heavenly father. He goes there to pray. But the passage tells us in Mark 14 that Jesus becomes overwhelmed with fear. It says he's greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus staggers and stumbles to the ground. Do you know why? Well, one of my favorite commentators on the gospel of Mark is William Lane. And he writes these words. Jesus came to be with the father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. Don't you see Jesus took on the sin of Peter's betrayal? He took on the sin of his people. You see, we've all gone looking for heaven in a thousand different places, but have only found hell. Jesus, the one true person worthy of heaven, has found hell. For us. Don't you see? Jesus was taking our place. That is how I know he is waiting for you. That's he's waiting for you. You see, on the cross, Jesus shows us the costliness of his love, that he would die for us, that we have fallen short of his perfection, that we have run after all the wrong things and have only found a tomb. But we also see the extravagance of Jesus's love, that he would stop at nothing, including hell itself, to claim you. To make you his so that you would know for a thousand generations that no matter what tomb you find yourself in this Easter morning, he is coming with resurrection power to set you free. On the cross, he has taken our place so that we can know right now there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. What more would you want this Easter? What more could you want? Do you see your hope? It's in a man who took on the depths of hell to win you back. So go to him. He's waiting for you. He's ready to see you. 
He's ready to receive you now and for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the message of Easter. Would you make the hope of the resurrection real in our lives amidst this season of uncertainty? God, free us from all the other places we have run for resurrection and remind us of the depths of your love and how you alone have the power to set us free. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.